entering the Freedom Hut. The Democrats and the deep state did spy on the Trump campaign. We've known this for a while, but the attorney general today said it out loud on Capitol Hill and people in the mainstream media and in the Democrat apparatus freaked out about it. We'll talk about where this is going and whether there'll actually be accountability for the massive spying scandal against Trump and his campaign aides. That plus the latest on immigration and Bernie Sanders-style socialism coming up on The Buck Sexton Show. This This is The Buck Sexton Show, where the mission mission is to decode what really matters with actionable intelligence. Make no mistake. America. You're a great American. Again. The Buck Sexton Show begins. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. Buck Sexton. It is Buck Sexton. Now. I think spying on a political campaign is a big deal. I'm not suggesting that uh, those rules were violated, but I think it's important to look at that. And I'm not just I'm not talking about the FBI uh, necessarily, but intelligence agencies more broadly. So you're not you're not suggesting, though, that spying occurred. I don't, uh, well, uh, I guess you could, I I think there was a spying did occur. Yes, I think spying did occur. Spying did occur against the Trump campaign. Welcome to the Buck Sexton Show. Very important words there from the Attorney General of the United States. And you can just just, uh, hear liberals all of a sudden Oh my gosh, what is he saying? They got so nervous there for a minute because now it's all a function of controlling the narrative. Got to keep people from figuring out just how insane, just how reckless and ruthless and disgraceful the Democrats, the mainstream media, the deep staters like Comey and McCabe and Strzok and Page and Yates and Brennan, and Clapper. What they tried to do is to undo the results of the 2016 presidential election, to nullify the votes of over 60 million of their fellow Americans who voted for Donald Trump, and think that they're righteous in the whole process. There was spying by a Democrat administration's appointees against a Republican presidential campaign in an election year. And then there was an effort to use that spying to create further problems for the administration once the Republican had won and to bring down his presidency. There was spying. We have to we have to say it. We have to repeat it because just that sinking in just that that recognition in our brains begins the process of coming to terms with how much of a of a debacle this has been with the catastrophe that has befallen our institutions and our sense of fairness at the federal law enforcement level with the press, which I never thought was fair, but now at least we have, beyond any reasonable doubt, proof that the press is willing to play very dirty, to send people to prison, to lie about people, 
if it serves their political interests. They are activists without scruples. They are little character assassins for the left. That's what most of the mainstream media has turned into. And Bill Barr is just beginning this process of getting the answers on this we finally uh, we finally deserve or we, we, we need. Um, MSNBC's, you know, this is going to go, Cynthia Alksneed, no idea who this person is, but put on TV to say that Barr spine cabinets are, are crazy. They're just crazy. Play 20. At one point, he said, I think spying did occur. Your take on that, Cynthia? Well, I, I, I think that's crazy. <laughs> you know, uh, <laughs> we're, we're all uh, a little quiet Trump here accused, because I'm just I mean, hearing Trump the Attorney accused, General of the I mean, United it, States suggesting that Intel agency... Oh, sorry, spying, you know, that, that some reason there was spying on the Trump campaign and, and Trump accused that and there was bugging in the campaign and there just wasn't. Uh, and obviously Barr feels the need to uh, curry favor with Trump. And I don't understand why a man of his standing and reputation would feel the need to kowtow to the president in such a way. That's just idiocy. I mean, this was, she's, she's a former federal prosecutor. Uh, knows nothing about the intelligence community, apparently. Knows nothing about the Russia collusion case. What, what do you call running human informants against members of the Trump campaign, as they did to George Papadopoulos? Going to the FISA court to get really extra constitutional national security based surveillance done of Carter Page tied to the Trump campaign. We don't even know the full extent of what else. We don't know what they did to Manafort. We don't know what they did to Flynn. There are some people who think that they might have been caught up in all this, too, in terms of the surveillance. It, but, but how is that not spying? If taking people's emails and phone calls and, and, and uh, getting access to their most private and sensitive personal data, if that's not spying, what is spying? If using foreign intelligence operatives like Christopher Steele, remember, he's a foreigner too, and using foreign subsources in Russia, that's right, Russian sources to go after Trump. If that's not spying, what is? If it's not spying, why did Hillary's DNC pay a former spy to do the work? Of course it was spying. They just know that that word, that, that conjures up, it, be, it begins that process of allowing us to pro, uh, allowing us to understand, to come to grips with just how profoundly, profoundly abusive and wrong and underhanded this whole Trump-Russia collusion mess was. Can you imagine? Imagine for just a second that we found out what the, and think of how the press would react that there was an effort to say that President Obama and an effort that was picked up by the entirety of conservative media across the board, the top of the Republican Party, the Department of Justice, the FBI, the CIA, the State Department, who knows who else and where else. But working with foreign sources claimed that Barack Obama was, in fact, not only foreign born, but a foreign born asset run against the United States government and was a traitor, right? A, a foreign intelligence asset 
who had won the presidency with help of foreign uh, foreign powers, and that this all came out. There was no evidence for this, but the Republican establishment, the you know, conservative media, and the federal bureaucracy all created this conspiracy and acted on it and spied on Obama, pulled Valerie Jarrett's phone records, pulled David Axelrod's emails. Can you imagine how they would react to this? And, and in that case, I would say rightfully so. It is all we would, it would replace Watergate as this scandal that we would be forced to talk about for the next 50 years. As though it's the only scandal that has ever happened in political history. It would, it would finally replace Watergate as the most profound, most profound abuse of government authority, at least according to the Democrats, right? That's what they say Watergate was, uh, you know, of, of the last hundred years in American history. But because it's Donald Trump and because it's the Democrats who were the guilty parties here, we're supposed to believe that this is what? This was acceptable? Can anyone really make that case now? Barr, my friends, was just giving a, a beginning of what I think is going to be the reckoning for the Democrat left, the deep state, the mainstream media, places like CNN that were hiring people straight out of the top the top echelons of government and then laundering their nonsense stories and using their credentials, Clapper and Brennan and others, their former credentials in the intelligence agency to make their baseless accusations laundered through CNN seem credible. All of it, all of it was the dirtiest of politics. It was unethical, and I think we'll find out soon it was highly illegal. And no less than the presidency of the United States hung in the balance. That's why they don't want the word spying to be used. Congressman uh, Schatz today was trying very hard just, just to get Barr to say, no, no, don't say spying. Call it something else. Play 19. Do you want to rephrase uh, what you're doing? Uh, because I think the word spying uh, could cause uh, everybody in the cable news ecosystem to freak out. And I think it's necessary for you to be precise with your language here. You normally are, and I want to give you a chance to be especially precise here. I'm not sure of all the um, connotations of that word that you're referring to, but unauthorized surveillance. I want to make sure there was no unauthorized surveillance. Is that more appropriate in your mind? I, th this is your call. I really did want to give you a chance to say it how you wanted to say it and make sure that you didn't misspeak. You know, I'm just like, you know, maybe you just want to use like some different words than spying or something because like spying sounds scary. Yeah, that's because that's what they did. They spied on the Trump campaign. We were told that we're crazy for saying this. I remember it. Remember, oh, you know, when Trump said that he was wiretapped, oh, that's insane. No, no, they it was worse than a wiretap. They used FISA power to go after Carter Page. Remember, it's one of Buck's ironclad rules of the Russia collusion fiasco. Anyone who tells you that Carter Page should have been the subject of a FISA request is either a liar or a moron. No intelligent human being could sit down with Carter Page for five minutes, learn what happened with him, learn his story, hear him talk and say, yeah, this guy was a threat to U.S. national security worthy of a FISA warrant. 
but there's a desperation on the left. Look, look at this. Not only was Trump able to defeat Hillary, Trump was able to defeat Hillary with some of the most powerful elements of the federal bureaucracy and the government and the media actively working to lie about him, investigate him, and destroy him. And he still won. It's almost a miracle. I, I don't know how else to describe it. We, we've never come up against anything like this before. At least not that we know of. We've never seen such an obvious and concerted effort for people who work in the government and, and journalists who are supposed to bring us the facts. We know that's all a joke. Trying to not just tip an election one way, but then undo the results afterwards and to weaponize the intelligence community in the process. The intelligence community is never, never really going to be the same now because it has been brought right into the center of this complete nightmare that the Trump administration has been dragged through. It was spying, folks. That's what happened here. The Democrats, the left spied on Trump, spied on his people, and then decided that the narrative that they had already set up was too useful, even when they knew that it was a fantasy, to give up. Too helpful in trying to block Trump from achieving his goals, from delivering on his, pro on his promises to not just Trump voters, but to the American people. We will never be able to calculate the damage that was done to this country over the last two years, the, the, the time, the energy, the resources, the decision-making, all of it, all of it just thrown on a bonfire of the left's lunacy because they just can't handle that they lost, that the left's vision for the country is not shared by a majority of the American people, that we don't want to be a socialist nation, that we don't want to be all woke and intersectional left, and that people had had enough of a pseudo-elite class of political and media celebrities telling us what's right and what's wrong and how we should live our lives. This was all a threat to their power. Trump has always been a threat to the media's sense of itself, to the Democrat establishment's sense of how they've been able to convince Republicans to just lose with dignity time and time again. Now they have to deal with a fighter and a person who will call them out. They didn't like that. And so they went scorched earth to take Trump down. Yes, my friends, they spied on the Trump campaign without a legitimate basis to do so. If this had happened in some third world country, we would be hearing about how this was an, this was an attempted coup, how there should be Referrals to The Hague, perhaps, for prosecution, for, you know, international meddling in elections. I mean, we'd hear all kinds of crazy things. But because it happened in this country, because Hillary Clinton and her allies and the Obama administration are right at the very heart of it, they're saying, oh, no, it wasn't spying, you see. It was just highly sensitive, top-secret surveillance of American citizens without giving them any due process, all pushed along, not by a fear of a real national security threat, but by a fear of a political threat, that political threat being Donald J. Trump.
We have much more on this team. I'll be right back. It was an illegal investigation. It was started illegally. Everything about it was crooked. Every single thing about it. There were dirty cops. These were bad people. You look at McCabe and Comey, and you look at Lisa and Peter Strzok. These were bad people. And this was a an attempted coup. This was an attempted takedown of a president. And we beat them. We beat them. Absolutely true. It was an attempted takedown of a president. President Trump managed to endure. But that's that's not enough. Just that recognition. Although, don't forget it. The media is going to try to make you forget it. Don't let them get their way. Remember what was done here. Remember how they played the game. I think Barr is certainly going to remember. He's saying that he might spend some time investigating what the intel agencies did in this whole process. Play 16. I think it's my obligation. Congress is usually very concerned about intelligence agencies and law enforcement agencies staying in their proper lane, and I want to make sure that happened. We have a lot of rules about that. Chris Ray uh, is a great partner for me. I'm, I'm very pleased that he's there as the director. And if it becomes necessary to, to, to look over uh, some former officials' activities, I expect that I'll be relying heavily on Chris and, and work closely with him uh, in looking at that information. But uh, that's what I'm doing. I, I feel I have an obligation to make sure that government power is not abused. I mean, I think that's one of the principal roles of the attorney general. He makes such an important point here. Usually Democrats are so concerned about the intelligence agencies and did they do this wrong or that wrong? Usually Democrats are so critical of law enforcement, but oh, no, no, let's not look into this. Let's not get any answers about the Russia collusion probe. Let's just move right past this, they say. Talk about Medicare for all or something else. Uh-uh. Not on Bill Barr's watch. This guy, I'm telling you, I think he's going to get some answers. And the answers he gets, Democrats are going to hate it. Yes, I did. And uh, he also uh, has a fuller explanation of that in the report that I'll be making uh, available hopefully next week. Did he express any expectation or interest in leaving the obstruction decision to Congress? Not that he didn't say that to me, no. So he said the obstruction decision should be up to you? Uh, he didn't say that either. But that's generally how the Department of Justice works. A prosecutor's role at the end of the day is binary. Are there charges or no charges? Or is this a crime or not a crime? Have you overruled Mr. Mueller or his team on any redaction question? No. One way or the other? No. Okay. Have you discussed any specific redactions with the White House? No. Uh, have you uh, uh, overruled Mueller? Uh, uh, you know, Pat Leahy, maybe may, may time to think about writing a memoir and spending more time with the family. I, I'm just saying. I think I think we've had enough Pat Leahy in the Judiciary Committee for a very very long time. He's he's he has been a politician for plenty. I think it's time for Pat Leahy to maybe think about you know relaxing a little bit more. Anyway, uh, you'll notice that they're trying to set up some just just the basis 
for questioning what was done here, for the, the basis for questioning um, whether or not Barr has been ethical, has he bent any rules, has he done anything strange here at all? And the answer is, of course, no, no, no. Very well, Mitch, Mitch McConnell. Mitch McConnell is very clear on this point. He knows that they're only, they only have a few plays left. Democrats only have a few places they can go once this report finally gets dropped. A few places they can go. And one of them is going to be trying to trash Barr. They've already started that, but they're holding back on the full court press of Barr is terrible. You can't trust him. He's the worst. They're holding back on that until the report drops. But Mitch McConnell is trying to go a little bit ahead of that. Play clip 12. I trust the Attorney General to give us all of the information that we need without uh, revealing classified information or putting out the names of people whose reputations could be ruined who did nothing wrong. So I think it really gets down to a question whether you trust Bill Barr or not. And I do, and I think he will get us a report that is as open as possible, as soon as possible. It's absolutely true on, on all counts there. Look, Mitch McConnell is a sharp guy. And, and I think that, you know, conservatives do tend to give him a hard time on a lot of things because he's a, he is a little bit of an, he's an, obviously he is the political establishment in many ways. Um, but his work on the judiciary alone and getting those judges through, getting conservative judges put on the federal bench across the country that's going to have long-lasting ramifications that he has been a rock star on that. So, you know, give credit where it's due. Mitch and Mitch prevented the whole Merrick Garland fiasco from being something that we had to deal with for the next 30 years. So, you know, there's there's a lot going on here that Mitch should get a little bit of a round of applause for. But he knows that they're just going to try to trash Barr. That's what's coming up next. And, and the way they're going to trash him is by saying that there's something in the there, there's some decisions that were made in these redactions, even though he's laid out yesterday, Barr laid out the four criteria. They're going to color code them. They're going to make it very clear. And, and no one right now, at least openly challenges that, that those redactions or, or redactions for those reasons are unnecessary or, you know, that they're not right. But, you know, they're going to they're going to have to do something here because the report's not going to give them what they want. We already know that they're going to they're the Democrats are desperate to squeeze something out of the reports. So they can pretend that this hasn't all been a, a total loss for them. But I think they're going to be quite disappointed. And as to the transparency part of this whole discussion, um, that's where you have to remember, you know, Congressman Nadler, who's going to make a few. He's going to make a few appearances on the show today. A lot of interesting action going on on Capitol Hill last couple of uh, last couple of days. But we did a little mashup for you of, you know, what Congressman Nadler, depending on whether he wants the information, you know, depending on whether the information is damaging to Trump or not. Congressman Nadler is either for the release of the information or against it. There's no principle. There's no rules, per se. It's just, ooh, I think this is bad for Trump. It should be released. Oh, this is good for Trump? No, 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 don't don't release that information. Play clip 24. We are demanding and we have a right, uh, Congress has a right to the entire report with no redactions whatsoever. Much of this material is Federal Rule 6E material, that is material that by law 
uh, unless contravened by a vote of the House, must be kept secret. We're entitled to see it because Congress uh, represents the nation and Congress has to take action uh, on any of it. So we're entitled to see all of it. The entire Judiciary Committee is going to see it to decide what must be kept confidential as protecting privacy of third parties. That means 50 people are going to see it. It's going to leak out. And those privacy rights are going to be violated. And that is ensured by this resolution. He has said he will redact four classifications of information. Right. Our position is that he should redact none of it. Uh, statements which may or may not be true by various witnesses, uh, salacious material, all kinds of material that it would be unfair to release. Oh, wait, but before it was about Clinton, and so they wanted to keep it secret. Now it's about Trump, so it's all about transparency. Look, these people, this is why you can't, can't trust them and you really can't take them seriously. I mean, they pose a serious threat to honesty and decency, but they're not... They're not, as as it uh, turns out, individuals of of any real integrity. Uh, certainly not Nadler and some of his uh, his his cohorts on all this stuff. So we'll uh, we'll see how this all shakes out. We'll see what ends up going on here. I I I do think though that we should have an expectation that the Democrats are going to try everything that they can to undermine Barr. And, and to make it seem like he's been a bad guy here. And Barr knows that, which is why he brought Mueller along. Mueller's a part of the redaction process. Um, it doesn't matter, though. They're, they're going to lie about this stuff if they have to. They'll, they'll find a way to try to make him look bad. Uh, they're going to find a way to at least create a narrative for the MSNBC Trump deranged uh, that there's something nefarious going on here when there's just not. What's nefarious, as we have been discussing, is that there was a an effort at essentially a soft coup using the FBI, the intelligence agencies, some journalists, an oppo researcher, and the DNC to try to frame President Trump, which is what this was. This was framing the President of the United States. This is the biggest political scandal of my life. There's nothing else that even comes close. And we need to speak about it in those terms because that's what happened. When I talk about a political revolution, I know this may sound, sound radical to some people, but we are going to create an economy and a government that works for all of us, not just the 1%. So to answer your question, we are going to do away with those outrageous loopholes that allow large corporations owned by some of the wealthiest people in this country to pay nothing in taxes. We're going to end their ability to put their money in the Cayman Islands under the tax havens. The millionaires and the billionaires... Bernie Sanders doesn't like him. Millionaires and billionaires running around with all their money, landing on fire just to stay warm. Oh, here's, here's a stack of hundreds. I'm a little cold. Maybe I'll warm my hands with it. Maybe I'll just put some lighter fluid on it, increase climate change, and, and just burn a couple of mil right here because I'm a millionaire, maybe even a billionaire. Turns out that Bernie's a millionaire. Oh, what a shock, as we discussed yesterday. He's one of these... He's one of these uh, classic socialists who wants to advocate. Now, now that he has a net worth in the millions of dollars, he's happy to advocate for higher income taxes on everybody else so he can push the social programs he wants. And remember, it's not just, you know, the tax code is not just about the funding of government and the redistribution of wealth 
through the government mechanisms that that are essentially welfare programs, right? That's all certainly part of it. But it's also about what you can use the tax code to either encourage or discourage. You know, there are ways that you can use the tax code that are effectively tools of policy that don't really have much to do at all with balancing the budget or, or rather that aren't first and foremost about balancing the budget, you know, funding different programs. You know, the power to tax is the power to, uh, power to destroy. And it's one that the Democratic Socialists like Bernie Sanders want to have firmly entrenched in their hands. But, you know, Sanders has had some problems in the past because he ran for president in 2015, but only released a single year's tax return for 2014. Now, why is that? We all know why that is. Because when Bernie's running around, the billionaires, the billionaires, you know, they're just all these these fat cats like Scrooge McDuck. You ever see him? He's a duck with a top hat who swims around in a giant vault of gold coins. Very greedy. Very, very greedy. Um, Bernie's running around saying that. Meanwhile, Bernie's got more wealth than 99% of the country. Bernie's a one percenter, folks. It's a deep, dark little secret of the burn. He is a one percenter. And, and yet he talks all the time about how people you know, are, are just the wealthy or getting wealthier. And this guy's got three houses and he wants to be a socialist. Now, if he wants to be a socialist and have three houses, I, I just would like to understand what that's supposed to mean for people who are making $50,000 a year, but who under a Bernie Sanders government, if he had his way, would be paying 60% of that income in taxes. They're never going to have three houses. No, making 50 grand, paying 60% taxes, no three houses for you. Bernie Sanders is a hypocrite, as we know. I mean, there's something deeply fraudulent about someone who could, you know, he could give his money. He could give the the proceeds from his book, which is how he says he's made most of his money, uh, to charity, to fighting climate change. He doesn't want to do that. He likes to keep his money. You are the ones who are supposed to be giving up your money. And he's not the only one who is running far left for the uh, Democrat primary, but somehow thinks that the rules of wealth redistribution should not apply to him. You also have Elizabeth Warren out there who made, uh, for her last year, ta- I think she released 10, 10 years of tax returns, but and she has raised $6 million. Why doesn't she redistribute that to other people in the race? I think she should have to redistribute that money. Um, but she's, on the one hand, Elizabeth Warren pitching a wealth tax while we also find out she made just shy of a million dollars for 2018. Um, you know, her and her husband made $900,000 in income, $325,000 in book sales, and her husband earned $400,000 from Harvard. I mean, these, these people are well off. I mean, by any global standard, even by American standards, they're, they're wealthy. Uh, they're not rich, but they're definitely wealthy. And she's saying that she that we should have a wealth tax. Now, how would a wealth tax even be enforced? What would you do about this? Um, would you force somebody who's what? What if all your net worth is if you're a farmer, let's say, and all your net worth is essentially the land that you live on and farm in order to get income? 
Are you going to start to have to parcel up that land and sell it off? Is is that what a wealth tax would be? There's going to be a limit on this wealth tax? Okay, where's the limit supposed to be? You know, you'll notice that this is true of a lot of journalists and people in, in academia um, who have these positions that where they're essentially unfireable, where they have the right politics to get the job, which is one of the most important requirements. You've got to be a leftist. Uh, leftist if you want to be a journalist. Leftist if you want to be a college professor. And you get a two-household income of journalists or college professors. You know, you're making a half million dollars a year, more or less. But there's a lot of resentment from the left-wing half a million dollar a year intelligentsia toward the kind of people that are making 10, 20, and 50 million dollars a year or 100 million dollars a year, which is not that many people do that, but there are some. Uh, they view them as, you know, their earnings are egregious. You know, half a million a year is, is not egregious. That's what they say. And that's what they believe. Uh, I always remember when John Kerry and, and producer Mike can fact check me on this When John Kerry, when he was running for president, you know, a guy who's essentially lived off of the divorce proceeds of money made by other men. I mean, that's what's funded John Kerry's whole life. And yet when Kerry was running for president against Bush, I think he paid something like seven percent income tax because all of it was just uh, privileged and tax advantaged investment income. So, you know, he's paying 7% on a few million dollars of passive income and lecturing the rest of us about how our taxes should go up. And this is what Democrats do. They think that because they have these pure motives, that the hypocrisy of what they want for themselves versus what they want for you shouldn't really matter. Well, I think it matters a lot. You know what else we're going to find out? If we see the Burns taxes, Bernie Sanders, I can almost guarantee you. I mean, this is a guess, but I feel very confident about this. Bernie Sanders, the socialist, who cares so much about the poor, cares so much about people in the struggle, Bernie Sanders does not give much money to charity. I, I'm telling you, I can see it right now. Look, I don't give money to charity. The charity comes from the government. When I take all your money from the millionaires, the billionaires, we're going to funnel that money to charities. And by charity, I mean government programs. They're going to employ bureaucrats who take a huge cut off the top and then do very low-level, third-tier kind of work to help poor people. Uh, that's his version of charity, taxing you more and creating more government programs to give money to people based on, on, on what the government thinks they should get and to have a whole layer of waste on top of that of people that are administering administering those, uh, those funds that are taken from you. I, I'm telling you, Bernie Sanders is not a charitable guy. Um, I, I don't think Elizabeth Warren, you're going to see much charity either. Now, it's, it's always been a knock on Trump that, you know, that people say that he doesn't give enough money to charity and the Trump Foundation bought an oil painting of him. I, I know all this stuff, but, you know, Trump is the guy who's the capitalist. Trump isn't the one who's running around saying that we all need to pay our fair share. That's these people. That's Sanders. That's Warren. And they don't want to pay their fair share. They just want you to. I mean, this is the this is the uh, a fundamental flaw in redistributive economics is that the people that are always pushing this or the rest of us don't want to live with it themselves maybe because there's something wrong with taking from people to give to other people because you say so bernie the office uh of the inspector general has a pending investigation of the fisa process in in the russian investigation and i expect that that will be complete in 
probably in May or June, I am told. More generally, uh, I am reviewing the conduct of the investigation and trying to get my arms around all the, the aspects of the uh, counterintelligence investigation that was conducted during the summer of 2016. Attorney General Barr reviewing the conduct of the FBI's investigation into non-existent Russia-Trump collusion. Will we finally get answers here, my friends? I was seeing some nervous stuff on Twitter today from some of the journos who were part of this whole hoax in the mainstream media. What can we expect next? We're joined by an expert on this matter, our friend Greg Jarrett, Fox News legal analyst and author of the best-selling The Russia Hoax. Greg, great to have you back. Hey, Buck, great to be with you. So what are your expectations? I mean, today, Barr, and he's not a... He's not a guy with a lot of bluster. You know, he's not somebody who's prone to overstatement. He's been in this game a while. He's a professional. Um, But he seemed to make it pretty clear to folks who were listening and and paying attention to that hearing that there there could be a reckoning of uh, a reckoning to come here. They might be looking at the investigators. What are your expectations for where this is going? Well, Barr has a reputation for being an honest, honorable guy, and he cares deeply about the rule of law, and that means nobody's above the law. As he stated today on the Senate side, he said, look, this is my job. If there's an abuse of power, uh, I'm duty-bound to examine it and hold those people accountable. And, of course, he said today that he believes spying on the Trump campaign did occur the question is, was it uh, adequately predicated, meaning did the law justify it, and, and was the law followed if there was unauthorized surveillance? That's potentially a crime. But he, you know, he said today spying on a political campaign is a big deal. So Barr is taking this seriously. Now, when we look at what, what happened here with the uh, the FISA process, and FISA is something that I'm familiar with from my time at the CIA, so uh, there was always this sense, Greg, that nobody would abuse. And, and this just comes out of the, the, ment- the post-9-11 mentality. I know FISA has been around for a lot longer than that, but it really used to just be about finding spies in the United States, I mean, that was the primary reason for FISA. And then when the counterterrorism mission post-9-11 became the primary national security mission of the United States government. Uh, FISA took on a a whole kind of new problem set and a whole new meaning. But there was always this, well, no one's ever going to abuse FISA because it's only for these two really important things, getting spies who are in the U.S. and stopping terrorists and terrorist plots. Uh, How confident are you that if we see the redacted information used to get, for example, the Carter Page uh, FISA surveillance warrant, that we're going to see that this system was abused. And, and what should we be looking for? Well, I, we need to examine all of it and the basis, the justification for their uh, seeking an intrusion under the Fourth Amendment of somebody's privacy rights, uh, Carter Pages. And in turn, uh, to the extent he was associated with the Trump campaign, Donald Trump's First Amendment rights to free speech and his privacy rights. Look, the, um, it appears to me, based on the redacted version of the FISA uh, warrants from the FBI and the Department of Justice, that they concealed vital evidence and deceived the judges. Uh, they didn't uh, 
tell them about exculpatory evidence they had, which the law requires them to advise the court of. They didn't tell who was paying for the dossier, Hillary Clinton campaign and Democrats. That would be vital information. Um, They didn't uh, tell the court that uh, the information, which was based on this phony dossier, was unverified at that point. The law is very specific. You may never submit unverified information to a FISA court. Uh, If the judges had known the truth of all of that, they would never have issued a warrant to spy on Carter Page. And so, as I explain in my book, The Russia Hoax, that constitutes arguably six different felonies, deprivation of rights under color of law, perjury, uh, false statements, conspiracy to defraud, uh, fraud on the court. These are serious felonies, and there were five individuals who signed off on these uh, four successive warrants. And so the question becomes, did they break the law? And it looks like both the inspector general at the Department of Justice as well as the attorney general will be examining that. Speaking to Fox News legal analyst Greg Jarrett, also author of the excellent book, The Russia Hoax, Uh, Greg what are the what are the big you know we're about to get the report i mean it could be within a matter of just a few days here people are saying next week uh we're gonna see the report there'll still be some redactions in it but it'll give us a really good sense of what happened here with this investigation but based on what Barr was saying today on capitol hill about how he thinks there was spying going on here i mean i I think at this point we can say there was spying going on the only question i mean spying on the trump campaign it's just a matter of was it authorized spying or not or was it an abuse of authority and to your point was it perhaps criminal in nature not just bad judgment inside of the fbi and the doj and perhaps elsewhere Uh, but what are the big questions you know you've been covering this for a long time and you've been following it in detail what are the big questions you want answers to well uh, i argue in the book there was never any evidence that Trump colluded with Russia to steal the presidential election. So the first big question is, uh, upon what basis did you have to launch the investigation? July 31st of 2016, if you look at the testimony of FBI lawyer Lisa Page, released about three weeks ago, she admitted that uh, they really didn't have any evidence at all. You know, I lay out in my book... The FBI guidelines and regulations for when you can and cannot uh, launch an investigation. And they clearly, in my judgment, violated their regulations. They launched a dilating investigation of Trump driven by personal animus and political bias. Um, If they did that, um, they are arguably committing crimes. And so, you know, I think that's the first big question that the attorney general wants answered. Um, And all you have to do is look at the, you know, text messages between Peter Strzok and Lisa Page, which speaks to uh, the question of was political bias motivating and driving this investigation of Trump to help Hillary Clinton and harm Trump? And the answer to me is... Yes, just read the texts. There are some very important parts of the timeline, and you you mentioned one of them here, that the investigation into Russia-Trump collusion 
begin July 31st, 2016. But when was, and this is just really for, for the benefit of our audience and to make sure that I'm also tracking this properly uh, in terms of the timeline, the Carter Page FISA application did not come till later on, right? So what, I mean, I know you said there was no evidence, but what was supposed to be the evidence? I mean, how did they get this thing started? Was it really just based on the the dossier and, and Papadopoulos? How do you think that they got this thing up and running? Papadopoulos was a red herring, a diversion that the FBI threw to the New York Times, which swallowed it hook, line, and sinker. Uh, it's silly and ludicrous to, to think that you know, Papadopoulos hearing a, a multiple hearsay rumor um, constituted sufficient evidence and probable cause for an investigation. No, it was based on this uh, anti-Trump dossier that was conjured from the fertile imaginations of two nefarious characters, an ex-British spy Christopher Steele and Fusion GPS founder Glenn Simpson, and it was commissioned by the Hillary Clinton campaign and the Democrats. And then it was peddled all over Washington to journalists, the FBI, the State Department, the Department of Justice. I mean, this thing spread like an airborne contagion. And the premise of it uh, was really a ruse, and it was as, as outlandish as the actions of those at the FBI and, and others who advanced it. You know, remember that Steele was fired by the FBI for lying and went into hiding. Simpson eventually invoked uh, the Fifth Amendment and clammed up. There were never any credible facts when the FBI wrongfully launched its collusion investigation. Do you think there will be accountability uh, on this matter? Uh, we do have Barr speaking in a forthright manner about it today on Capitol Hill. It looks like uh, all the signs, and I know you, you deal with this in your book, The Russia Hoax, but all the signs point to this being orchestrated by anti-Trump elements within the government and, and in the media, as well as the Democrat Party, working together to, to create this, you know, th this perfect storm to try to take the president down. But are we going to see anyone who was on that side of the equation? We've seen people around Trump who had nothing to do with Russia collusion get jammed up just in, in the gears of the investigation itself and get hit with either tax fraud charges or lying under oath charges. Are there going to be any charges against the people that try to soft coup against the president of the United States? Well, there should be. Uh, and, you know, the Clinton case and the Trump case are a tale of two cases. There were five individuals close to Hillary Clinton who were given immunity in exchange for nothing. And several of them not only obstructed justice, but lied. And Comey, in his testimony, admitted that some of those immunized people uh, that were close to Clinton had lied. And he sort of shrugged it off and said, well, you know, we, we toss it up to sort of failed recollections. No, they deliberately lied, and in some cases documents prove they lied. Juxtapose the Trump case. You know, if you so much as shake hands or wave at Donald Trump, the full force of the federal government, the Department of Justice and FBI, comes down hard on you. Um, you know, Michael Flynn didn't really lie. The FBI agents who interviewed him said he, uh, he told the truth, and yet he was charged with lying. Uh, and under pressure, he caved in and, and pled guilty. So, you know, there is a, a 
double-tiered system of justice in America, one for the Clintons and another one for Trump and everybody else. Uh, and so I am optimistic that those who broke the law will be held accountable. Just look at James Comey. He stole government documents, leaked them to the media for the purpose of triggering the appointment of a special counsel who happened to be his longtime friend, partner, and ally. <laughs> I mean, if you harbor any doubts about the complete lack of evidence uh, when when Robert Mueller was appointed, just read the closed-door testimony of Comey and, and Lisa Page. And their admissions will stun you. It didn't surprise me when Mueller uh, reached the conclusion that there was no collusion, uh, because there never was any to begin with. Greg Jarrett, everybody, Fox News legal analyst. Check out his book, available on Amazon right now, The Russia Hoax. Greg, always great to have you, sir. Thank you. Buck, my pleasure. Thanks. Team, we'll be right back. Well, here's what Biden is up against. Here's how it may keep coming back and back and back. This is a meme that was created by a semi-anonymous uh, man from Kansas City, from Kansas. This he posted it, and then the Trump world posted yes. it, and then the president himself posted it on Twitter. It's Biden fondling yeah, himself. Now, Twitter, on one level, it's just a funny meme. On another Friday level, this is how politics is waged this day. These are the meme wars in action. Do you think Democrats understand what they're up against? Because there was a Mother Jones headline the other day saying the right-wing uh, media machine is much more effective. Okay, okay, this kind stop, of visual- stop, stop, Brian Stelter. Oh, my God, Brian Stelter is giving me a headache. The meme wars of the Democrats, do they realize the force of the memes that are coming up against them? I just, I just don't really understand if the memes are going to be, like, really, like, mean. Like, mean memes make me cry. I don't like the mean memes. Just somebody, like, said, hey, Brian Stelter, why are you, like, a mini Jeff Zucker, and why is your bald head so shiny? I just, you know, why do people say these things? Oh, man. To have a show at CNN where you just get to be like, hey, I'll do whatever you want. I'm just here to be a, a check on the media and make sure that, you know, the media is a checked on thing. And, uh, yep. It's amazing. I don't know. I, I can't tell if... um. I can't tell if the real problem here is that there are people who manage to excel in the media despite having no apparent talent or ability, or maybe that's something that should inspire the rest of us, right? Like we could, you know, if Brian Stelter could have a show on CNN where he's like, "Hey, here I go," you know, they got to be paying him a half a million a year, maybe, maybe more. Um, if if that can happen for him, it could, you know, happen for any number of folks, right? So I, mean, I, I, sh- I think we should all be inspired by it. Speaking of people who go on CNN, there's a a woman by the name of Vinograd, Sam Vinograd, who once referred to my Twitter account as something that a Russian bot would come up with, which I thought was was both amusing and incredibly stupid at the same time. Uh, She was a a collusion truther all along, still still seems to be um, and, and has not been in any way chastened. She's a national security analyst over at CNN. They put her on to talk about these things. She's. Uh, not particularly insightful or or interesting on any national security topic. I mean, if you're ever curious, I'll tell I'll tell you who goes on TV and knows knows their stuff and knows what they're talking about, um, left and right, because there are some leftists who, who are knowledgeable about these issues. They just are wrong in their judgment. Uh, Vinograd is doesn't strike me as one of them, um, but she decided to wax philosophical on immigration. Immigration came up for her, and this was just a great moment in. Oh, CNN, because, you know, we're not the Obama DNC network. We're just about journalism. 
this is their national security analyst explaining how, okay, maybe Obama did separate families at the border, but I mean, you know, it was like for their own good, play clip one. And when President Obama separated children from their families' wealth, or from adults' wealth, it was for their protection. Right. It, was, it was if there was a risk of trafficking or other kind of harm that might have been incurred. But even if he did do that, why is Donald Trump saying that two wrongs make a right? Again, Obama wasn't wrong, but so he's saying that because something happened under President Obama, he's repeating it and upping the ante. That is an incredibly poor excuse. He has systemized that inhumane treatment that, again, Obama was doing to protect the children. Well... Trump has to do that, too, to protect the children, because you don't know if someone's being human trafficked just because someone shows up with them and says, that's my, you know, this is my child. You don't know. You got to separate them. Although the system's overwhelmed, so now they can't even process them. So now they're just letting them into the country. But the reason that Trump points this out is because the way Democrats try to seize the moral high ground for creating what is effectively an open border and supporting it and uh, stymieing, stopping at every turn the president's efforts to try and get control over the border. They just say, oh, family separation. He's a monster. He's basically Hitler, family separation. Well, I'm sorry. You don't get to say that Trump's a monster and basically Hitler as a Democrat for doing something that Obama did. And there were uh, there were things um, that the Obama administration put into place in terms of kids in cages and, and all these different policies and procedures that Trump is really just has inherited and we, we still are we're you know we're, we're allowed to do everything except enforce the laws with consequences at the border that's that's where democrats draw the line oh yeah sure we believe in the law just no consequences here's the problem if there's no consequences then you know what is also true there's no laws Anybody who can look at me with a straight face and tell me that they know what happens to those young children once they're released into the United States mm -hmm. is lying. It's wishful thinking that they're, oh, they're united with family members and sponsors and they're gainfully employed and life is, uh, life is wonderful, roses and lollipops after that. You don't know where they are. You don't know if who's human trafficked, who's murdered, who, who's with a gang. Right. Um, I've got girls 14, 11, and 9. They are with all three of them within the range of the girls being pumped with birth control and pregnancy tests because we know this journey mm. is perilous. Stop lying right. and start doing. Kellyanne Conway makes a very important point there. Not only do we not know when these family units show up at the border that they're actually families, we, we just we don't know that, and we know there are recycling rings for the children. Um, but beyond that, we also know that or rather, we, we don't know. We know that we don't know. That once they get into the United States, we have no idea what's going on. Placing them with sponsor families. You know, th this isn't supposed to be the job of the government. This is what people keep forgetting. Th this is not supposed to be really our problem. This is really not supposed to be our problem. We're supposed to have laws where if you show up at the border, you're not supposed to be here. It's sorry, turn around. Not allowed to be here. It's called sovereignty and rule of law. See you later. Thanks. Unfortunately, that's not the system we have that our border is collapsing because of the exploitation of the kindness and the largesse of the American people, our willingness to take people in to make sure that even non-Americans get all the due process anybody could ever dream of and make sure that they're safe and fed and warm while in this country and waiting for that due process. You know, that's all being exploited. You know, this is like, you know, imagine if you show up at a soup kitchen, which I'm sure many of you listen to this do, 
and you know you're you're helping people at the soup kitchen, giving them food. People are down their luck, they need a little bit of assistance. You want to get them a good hot meal. You want to encourage some people maybe to try to get back on their feet, and you know it, it's a good Christian kind thing to do. But imagine, imagine uh, when you find out that the person that you've been serving at the at the soup kitchen follows you home. And says, "Hey, uh, I'm just gonna take this uh, this spare room. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna sleep here. You're not using it." You'd say to yourself, well, "Well, hold on a second. I I mean, I'm I'm a I'm a trying to be a decent person here, trying to help you out, and I I want to make sure that you know you're okay and you're fed. But I, I didn't offer you a room in my house. No, 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 no. It's fine. It's fine. I just I'm just gonna take this room. Don't worry about it. You won't even know I'm here most of the time." What are you? Are you? Are you going to be inhumane? Are you going to kick me out on the street? I mean, I, I need a place to sleep. That's what the American people are being uh, shown right now. That that exploitation of our of our kindness as a people is what is going on at the border. Make no mistake about it. This is people who are following us home from the soup kitchen, saying they want a room in our house. Huh? It's not the way it's supposed to be. And. The, the, the numbers are just showing that there's a scam. One part of this that I don't think uh, people hear nearly enough is that the media and the government in countries like Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador, they're also, they're fanning the flames of this conflagration at our border. They're, they're making this worse for us because they, they want people who, does anyone really think that what's happening is you have you know, brain surgeons and, and college professors and engineers who are on foot and entrusting themselves to the coyotes over this journey. No, of course not. These are overwhelmingly very poor, uh, uneducated, non-English speaking uh, people. And they're going to require a lot of assistance, a lot of help and a lot of, you know, extra government and state attention. This, this is just a fact. It's just a fact. We all know this. And that's why the, the numbers matter so much, because the long-term implications and long-term costs of this are going to be astonishingly high. It's not going to be, these are not going to be net contributors to the economy. If that were the case, why, did there, why are there so many developed first world countries that have very strict immigration requirements that are meant to bring people in on merit? Whatever happened to that? We're just going to skip right past that. Huh? Now it's all, now our immigration system is all, Show up at the border and say that you're scared when you really just want a job or, or you want welfare benefits or um, family, uh, you know, chain migration. Those are the two. That's how we're picking most of our immigrants now in this country. Ah, that's not the system that the American people think they're getting. Kellyanne Conway also gets this part of it. The numbers really speak for themselves. Play 13. The fiscal year so far, we've had 104 of these, 104 so-called caravans with at least 100 people. Two years ago, in fiscal year 2017, we had exactly two. We've gone from two to 104. Hmm. Stop denying what you see in front of you. We've got people still searching for the elusive collusion and will deny what's right in front of them, which is over 100,000 migrants presented at the border just last month alone. That was a 35% jump from February, from the month before. The flow is different. For years, really, a decade ago, most of them were single males coming from Mexico and you can return them very easily to their home country. Now you have 8,000 or so unaccompanied uh, minors last month. You have the family units from the Northern Triangle countries. It's a perilous journey. It is a security and a humanitarian crisis at the border. 
Humanitarian crisis at the border, that's what we've got going on. That is what is happening here. It's also a security crisis. It's also a crisis of the rule of law. Democrats are fine with all this. Democrats don't seem to have a problem with it. As we know, they they encourage it. Uh, and I would note that the caravans are are not just, we we're told, it's usually reported that they're, so people can come and they can be safe, but also the mass surrenders that happen, those are happening, for, meaning that people, they say present, I mean, they're being detained, they're crossing illegally in the United States. Even if you show up, not at a port of entry and say, hey, here I am, and you walk into America, that's illegal. You've broken the law. They're presenting themselves and then they're detained. The reason that they're sometimes showing up in groups of 100, 300, 500 is because, one, the cartels are controlling all this, making a ton of money off of it. And they know that when they have a group of that size, there's such an immediate drain on Border Patrol resources that you can essentially sneak anything across the border at that point that you want. So that's one big component of this. And the other is just that it it further overwhelms the system. You got to remember that I've seen these processing facilities and I've been to the one in El Paso where you have people living under a bridge, not living, sleeping for two days under a bridge overpass surrounded by, you know, chain link fence. And, you know, if you bring in enough people, they have to do triage with who's sick, who has an infant, who has immediate needs. And so if you're trying to sneak into the country, if you are recycling a child or human trafficking or doing any of these things, you want to go in with a big group because they just they're overwhelmed with trying to process them and they're just going to move people through as fast as they can. So there's a strategy behind these caravans. It's not it's not just for self-preservation. The cartels are utilizing it and there are some bad actors, I can tell you that, in these groups who have been deported multiple times. They've they're you know showing up with the child and now whether the child is theirs or not, they know that they're going to be let into the United States. Don't have any answers for how to solve this one yet. I'm, I'm working on it. We, at, least, at least now, the nation has fixed much of its attention. The, the news cycle is dominated by this border issue. But as long as you have the Ninth Circuit running defense for the open borders left, and you have Democrats completely unwilling to take any meaningful enforcement measure, against you know infrastructure is not enough we're not just trying to make the pathway uh easier bigger and and faster for people to just flood into the country who aren't actually legal immigrants that's not what we're trying to do that's all democrats want to do we'll continue to fight on this one i i'm i i get frustrated with it i get frustrated because we know what the truth is but so many people are just either lying or delusional the issue is. It's the NRA and it's greed. The NRA is largely funded by the gun manufacturers. The gun manufacturers want to make money at all cost. It doesn't matter who they're selling the gun to. The reason why they are against universal background checks is they want to sell a weapon to somebody on the terror watch list. They want to sell a weapon to someone gravely mentally ill with a violent background. They want to sell a weapon to someone with a criminal conviction for a violent crime. Kirsten Gillibrand I don't know if she's just completely cynical or a total moron. I, I can't tell. I go back and forth. But everything that she just said there is false. I mean, I mean, you could go through it 
And that was during a CNN town hall. Apparently, CNN claims to be able to tell the difference between an apple and a banana, but they can't tell when someone's nuts. Everything she said there was false. Every statement she made was factually, demonstrably untrue. Let's go through them for a moment, shall we? Where are all the Pinocchio Washington Post fact checker people, huh? Where's Snopes and this and that fact checker on, on what Gillibrand is saying here? Also, you notice how these people focus so much on guns and this campaign rhetoric. Over 300 million guns in this country. This is just all virtue signaling. They're not serious about stopping. Well, they, they think that by harassing legal gun owners with additional paperwork and restrictions on magazine capacity. They, does Kirsten Gilbert really is she so dumb that she thinks that's going to stop all the homicides and or stop any homicides in uh, South and West Chicago? I don't think so. So why does she say this stuff? Because the good people don't like guns. You see, that's what the left believes. The good people think guns are scary. Guns go bang. Guns are bad. That's all they need. That's all they need to know. Oh, and more importantly, perhaps now, people who own guns are the bad people. The people that, you know, believe in traditional America and church and God and freedom and the founding fathers and all that yucky stuff. Those people also tend to like guns. So that's why she says this. But let's just let's just for a moment, just because we're all about getting things right here. We're all about the facts. Let's just for a moment um, take a look at what she said. Wants to sell people, sell guns to people on the terror watch list. Uh, the, the terror watch list. I mean, it depends on, first of all, what she's really talking about. Um, if you are not a citizen, you are not allowed. I mean, if you're not, if you're in this country on a visa, you're not buying a gun. So who are you really talking about on the terror watch list? Also, if you are a citizen and you're on a watch list, yeah, should you lose your constitutional rights and have no means of redress for them? Because that's the situation on the watch list right now. You know, we talk about the no fly list, the terror watch list. You know, she's just using all these things interchangeably. But that's just fear mongering. No idea what the heck she's talking about. Gravely mentally ill with a violent background. Nobody in the NRA. And I know people who are in the senior leadership ranks, of the NRA, I know, I mean, I, I myself uh, have been an NRA member, although I'm not going to lie, I think my dues might have lapsed recently, but I uh, I have been an NRA member in the past. Uh, I should probably just become a lifetime member and get it over with. Uh, I just realized as I was on air here that I think I need to send in my NRA dues for this year. My bad. Uh, a little, little late in the game. But Nonetheless, the the NRA is not funded by the gun companies. Uh, The NRA is founded by its or is funded rather by its members. And the NRA does not want people who are gravely mentally ill with a violent background to get a gun. And there are already laws that prevent people. It is already a felony if you have been involuntarily committed or determined mentally unfit by a judge, uh, then then yeah, then then you can't have a gun. And also criminals convicted for a violent crime. I mean, I'm assuming, see, she'd probably say, well, you know, not all violent crimes are felonies, but uh, criminals convicted of a violent crime and people convicted uh, convicted of domestic violence, uh, they, they cannot own guns. Felons, by definition, cannot, as a matter of federal law, cannot own a gun. So d- does anyone care that she's just making stuff up? Does anyone care that she just lies and lies and lies? I mean, at this 
CNN Town Hall, everyone's just eating it up. You know, Aaron Burnett, who is a stunningly successful mediocrity. I do not understand what is going on there at all. I don't. I really don't. Um, but she's uh, she's running this town hall. They seem to have no problem with all the stuff that was being said there by Kirsten Gillibrand, all, all the lies, all the nonsense. And uh, this is just what we're up against. Speaking of nonsense, fact checks, things that people should be aware of that they're not aware of. So you've got Maxine Waters, who... By the way, Producer Mike, is Maxine the one who... Is Congresswoman Waters the one who President Trump has said is low IQ? Or is, is that is did that member of Congress or am I missing, mix, uh, mixing it up with another one? Oh, yeah, he calls her low IQ. Right, right. That's, okay, that's what I thought. Yeah, he calls her low IQ Maxine. Now, people get very mad about that. And they say that's not fair. It's mean. It's People will say it is, uh, it is racist for Trump to say that. But, you know, I, I will just be very clear on this. It is possible for people of any race to be stupid. It, it is possible for a person of any ethnic background to be dumb. White, everything else, you name it. There are dumb people in that. We all know this, right? So calling someone dumb is not racist. Calling someone dumb because they're dumb is just a statement of fact or, or, or an observation, maybe, if not a statement of fact, an obvious observation. It has nothing to do with race, and it is not fair for people to say that about President Trump when he's talking about Maxine Waters, because Maxine Waters does say some really, really dumb stuff. Today, uh, she was doing her, her thing on Capitol Hill, and the, the chairwoman of the House Financial Services Committee, remember that, uh, seemed to forget something about student loans. Talk about student loans, hearings going on here. Play clip 25, please. Today, there are more than 44 million Americans that owe, this is student loan crisis, 1.56 trillion in student loan debt, Last year, one million student loan borrowers defaulted, which is on top of the one million borrowers who defaulted the year before. What are you guys doing to help us with the student loan debt? Who would like to answer first? Mr. Monaghan, Big Bang. Uh, we'd stopped making student loans in 2007 or so. Oh, so you don't do it anymore, Mr. Corbett? We exited student lending in 2009. Mr. Diamond? When the government took over student lending in 2010 or so, we stopped doing all student lending. She doesn't know. It's been almost a decade since these banks got pushed out of the student loan business. Mike, how is this possible? Tears of joy. Not joy, I should say. Tears of laughter were coming out of my eyes as I was cut. I couldn't believe what I was hearing. That's right. Chairwoman Um, of the House Financial Services Committee. Who's who's smarter, uh, Mike? Maisie Hirono or Maxine Waters? Or the hardwood that my my desk is made out of? I'll go with uh, the hardwood that my desk is made out of. I think hour that's th- smarter than both of them. Our hour three is coming up. Of all the people that Republicans could have selected, they picked Candace Owens. I don't know Miss Owens. I'm not going to characterize her. I'm going to let her own words do the talking. So I'm going to play for you the first 30 seconds of a statement she made about Adolf Hitler. I agree. I actually don't have any problems at all with the word nationalism. I think that it gets, uh, the definition gets poisoned by elitists that actually want globalism. Globalism is what I don't want. So when you think about whenever we say nationalism, the first thing people think about, in at least in America, is Hitler. You know, he was a national socialist. But if Hitler just wanted to make Germany great and have things run well, okay, fine. 
problem is, is that he wanted, he had dreams outside of Germany. He wanted to globalize. He wanted everybody to be German, everybody to be speaking German. Oh, that was from today. And that was the clip that was that was uh, played by Ted Liu at a House Judiciary Committee hearing on online hate speech that got very testy today because you have Ted Lieu, who's he's Mr. Like left wing woke member of Congress now. Um, And things got testy because Ted Lieu during this hearing on hate speech decided to play that clip. Now, now let's before we get into Candace's full on body slam of Lou, which was amazing and great and very thankful that uh, Candace took the position she did and threw down in the way that she did. But before I, I let you just enjoy that glorious moment with me, what is Ted Lou really trying to say here? Is his position, I mean, this is, this is the level of, of intellectual dishonesty, the degree of a lack of seriousness in their arguments and in their positions that Democrats show all the time. Is it really his, his position, his belief that Candace Owens, a, a black female American conservative, is pro-Hitler? Is that really what Ted, is that what Ted Lieu is selling? Because I think that's what he's selling. I, I think this is what he's trying to, this is the point he's trying to make by, by pulling that clip and playing it there when Candace was trying to have a discussion about nationalism and how nationalism has a negative connotation versus patriotism when really nationalism and patriotism are in many ways very similar things. I mean, you know, there, there's there's some nuance in the definitional difference, but the nuance is really a difference of connotation, not of hardcore meaning. And that's what she's trying to say. And it's because of who people think of as the greatest nationalists. I mean, if you really want to talk about the, the you know, the, the ultra nationalists of, of history, uh, you've got people like you know N- Napoleon and Stalin and and Hitler and you know these are people that are thought of as as ultra nationals. Always an interesting side note: they all came from the fringes of their national identities. Just by way of a little historical digression here, Napoleon came from Corsica, not from mainland France, island of the Mediterranean. Stalin came from Georgia, not from Russia which is really a, a province of the Russian, what was the Russian Empire, and then, of course, the Soviet Union. And Hitler came from Austria, not from Germany, which people often forget. Um, nonetheless, uh, and that this reminds me of a line, I think it was a Christopher Hitchens line, that the greatest trick the Austrians ever pulled was convincing the world that Hitler was German and Beethoven was Viennese. Uh, so... What is Ted Lieu saying? He's saying that Candace Owens is pro-Hitler, I guess. I don't know. But Candace, whom I've uh, worked with before, had on my show and, and seen when, when you, you poke you poke Candace, you better be ready. You better be ready for it. And uh, this is how that turned out for Congressman Lou today. Please play it. It's pretty apparent that uh, Mr. Lou believes that black people are stupid and will not pursue the full clip in its entirety. He purposely presented an extracted witness, clip. Witness will suspend for a moment. It is not proper to refer disparagingly or with, to a member of the committee. Uh, the witness will not do that again. 
Witness may not refer to a member of the committee as stupid. I didn't refer to him as stupid. That's not what I said. That's not what I said at all. You didn't listen to what I said. He is assuming that black people will not go pursue the full two-hour clip. And he purposefully extracted, he cut off, and you didn't hear the question that was asked of me. He's trying to present as if I was launching a defense of Hitler in Germany, when in fact, the question that was asked of me was pertaining to whether or not I believed in nationalism, and that nationalism was bad. And what I responded to was that I do not believe that we should be characterizing Hitler as a nationalist. He was a homicidal, psychopathic maniac that killed his own people. He purposely wanted to give you a cut-up similar to what they do to Donald Trump to create a different narrative. That was unbelievably dishonest and she goes on and on slapping around some of these democrat members of congress today and man did they ever deserve it they they deserved it uh, this is one of the more disgraceful trends in american politics you see this with democrats now just saying that anything that is conservative or anything that is right wing is synonymous with white nationalism. That when people talk about um, a, a focus on on America first, that, that is inherently some kind of a racist dog whistle. And you know, Candace is a very effective messenger on this issue. She's like, this just needs to stop. These approaches to discourse that are just meant to shackle free thought, they can't be allowed to continue. It's wrong. It's wrong what it does to people. It, it's wrong to imprison people's minds by telling them that if they don't agree with what the Democrats are force feeding, they must be racist. They must be. They must be evil. And especially, it's you know when you, when you add into this that they're telling people who aren't white, who don't believe in all of the allegations all the time that Trump is a white nationalist, that white supremacy is the uh, you know is at the heart of so much of of American life. I mean, all of just exaggerated, irresponsible nonsense that Democrats spew all the time. If you're a minority and you don't buy into this, the left just despises you. The left just wants to do everything they can to make your life miserable because to, to them it is completely unacceptable to be non-white and to refute this belief that the left is trying to foist in the American people that all things conservative and all things on the right are really just a cover for synonymous with somehow related to white supremacy. It is an absolute smear. It is a slur. And that's one you're going to see a lot more of, um, a lot more of going forward. By the way, you know, Nadler, because that's one of the things the Democrats are going to do is just try to make 2020 a referendum on racism. Are you a racist? No, vote vote Democrat. That's what they're going to say. Because you vote for Trump, you're you're a racist. That that's really the the extent of the argument that they're going to they're going to wage for many many people. Uh, Nadler, by the way, has a habit of uh, cutting off people. Producer Mike pointed this out to me. This was in a in a in a Mike. What was this hearing on the uh, Jewish activist Morton Klein calling out Omar? Is this also on the hate speech? Right. Yeah. It's the same hearing. It just took place a little earlier in the day. So um, yeah, same hearing. Well, let's, different time of day. Let's hear. Let's hear what Congressman Nadler does when he starts to hear things from a witness that he doesn't like. Play clip five. 
Zui's letter to City University. If we want to stop hate and stop institutions from supporting condoning it, I don't know how much time I have. You're, you're, you're 48 seconds over. Well, but I was stopped. I, I was stopped. With, with the outburst. The outburst. Go ahead. Another 30 seconds. I have something uh, very, very important to say. I was horrified to see Speaker Pelosi, Leader Hoyer, defend Representative Omar after her vicious anti-Semitic remarks. And pre and and the gentleman's time has expired. Ms. Owens. That was unfair. It was not unfair. You had plenty of extra time. Ms. No, Owens. I did not. Ms. Owens. <laughs> you remember the chairman agreeing to give you an extra 30 seconds because of the interruption that you experienced during your opening statement. And then do you remember being gaveled down by the chairman once you began speaking of the anti-Semitic remarks by a member of Congress? <laughs> We've just timed this. You, you only got 12 seconds. I have 30 seconds left. And so I'm going to give you those 30 seconds that you were promised and were denied. Things getting a little feisty on, on Capitol Hill. Things getting a little, uh, woo, a little spicy there in that, in that hearing. But, you know, Nadler doesn't like to hear things he doesn't like to hear. And it's true of all Democrats. They would rather shout down arguments, whether it's on campuses or it's on Capitol Hill. They would rather shout down arguments that they find troubling than try to engage with the ideas and defeat them or even perhaps co-opt them into their own thinking. You know, it, it, it is possible. I mean, it, it is the mark of, I think, a very limited intellect to believe that there's no such thing as learning more about an issue from somebody else. Democrats are ossified in their thinking on these matters. They, they, they do not open themselves up to alternative points of view. In fact, they think alternative points of view are a form of violence, that, that there's something unethical about having to hear alternative points of view. Um, then there's just this other, I, I, I just found this kind of amazing. So the Treasury Secretary, Steve Mnuchin, oh, Maxine Waters is going to make another appearance here on the show in a second. Look at this. Treasury Secretary Mnuchin uh, appeared and this is just quite an exchange. I just, I just, I don't know why. I just wanted to play this for you because uh, you don't see that get testy like this usually on Capitol Hill, but there's something in the water right now, man. People are getting spicy with each other. Play, play clip eight. Mr. Secretary, I want you to know that no other secretary has ever told us the day before that they were going to limit their time in the way that you're doing. So if you want to use them as examples, you have acted differently than they have acted. And as, about, as I have said, if you wish to leave, you may. If you'd wish to keep me here so that I don't have my important meeting and continue to grill me, then we can do that. I will cancel my meeting and I will not be back here. I will be very clear if that's the way you'd like to have this relationship. Thank you. The gentleman, the secretary, has agreed to stay to hear all of the rest of the members. Okay, Please so just cancel let's your clear meeting to the press. and respect our time. I, I am Who is next on the list? My foreign meeting. You're, you're instructing me to stay here, and I should cancel. No, you just time. made me an offer. No, I didn't make you an you offer. You made me an offer that I accepted. I, I did not make well, you an offer. Just let's be clear. Well, you're you, instructing me. You are ordering me to stay here. No, you I'm not either. ordering you. I'm responding. Okay. I said you may leave anytime you want. And you said, okay, if that's what you want to do, I'll cancel my appointment and I'll stay here. So I'm responding to your request. If that's what you that's want to do. That's not what I want to do. I told you. What would you like to do? What I've told you is I thought it was respectful that you'd let me leave at 515. You are free to leave anytime you want. Time. You may okay, go well then, uh, anytime please, you want. Please, 
Please dismiss everybody. I believe you're supposed to take the gravel and, and bang it. That's Please do not instruct me as to how I'm to conduct this committee. <laughs> Mike, did you like that? I mean, what a, what yeah, a mess. It's amazing, right? She doesn't understand when he's like, I mean, if you're going to make me sit here, I guess I'll sit here, but that's not cool. She's like, okay, you'll sit there. And he's like, so you're making me? She's like, no, you said you would. He's like, no, I'm saying if you make me, I will, but I don't want to. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, it's like she, like, I don't know if she wasn't listening or she just didn't care or whatever, yeah. but Maxine, she's, she's a gift that keeps on giving. She's amazing, dude. The chairwoman of House Financial Services Committee, Maxine Waters. Democrats, everybody, just remember it. They're, they're, they say that they, oh, yeah, we're, they're going to be good in government. They're going to be better. Trump is so bad and evil. Yeah, let's put Maxine Waters uh, at the head of the House Financial Services Committee. That seems like, that seems like a great idea. Oh, my. Um, team, we've got so much more coming up. Stay with me. Ocasio-Cortez and to extent Representative Tlaib and also Representative Omar, they're basically creatures of social media and identity politics. I don't want to disparage them unnecessarily, but they have no achievement. They have no wealth of knowledge they draw on. So they each night they tweet something that's more ignorant than the last tweet. It's anti-Semitic, it's bigotry, shows an ignorance of the Middle East, of history, of economics. And the question, Sean, is though, why do they have such resonance? Why do the three leading care, uh, candidates, Beto and Biden and Bernie, why are they falling all over themselves to apologize for their privilege or to apologize for the history of white toxic masculinity? And I think the answer is that these three representatives have terrified the Democratic Party because they've suggested that they represent a constituency without which the Democrats can't win. I don't think that's true, but there's sort of a reign of terror going on that these three have engineered. I agree with the reign of terror that he's talking about here. I, I've said before that Ocasio-Cortez is, for you Game of Thrones fans, coming back this weekend, uh, the Joffrey Baratheon of the Democratic Party. Just running around ordering people, you know, to be horrifically punished and have their tongues cut out and things. And, and no one will no one will tell them no. You know, no one will tell them to stop on social media. That's kind of like Ocasio-Cortez. She runs around, says things, you know, people are all running around scared of her. I mean, she's she's an ignoramus. I mean, I don't know if it's fair to say she's stupid because she's obviously won a, you know, a political contest that required some degree of savvy and. You know, I, I think that she markets herself well, but she's not knowledgeable about anything. She's shockingly poorly read and poorly equipped to do higher level analysis. I mean, just not this is not someone who impresses anyone with the intellectual horsepower she brings to the issue she talks about. Uh, but there, there is a a kind of invulnerability. I mean, you know, the Democrats now have to deal with the fact that if you are because they're so reliant on identity politics, because these different constituencies from within the Democratic Party are treated as, as really sacrosanct. They are treated as uh, people who should be at all opportunities elevated, protected, um, treated to a, a different set of rules that goes easier on them than they would on people that are not in these protected groups. See Jussie Smollett, for example, or Ilhan Omar. I mean, if, if any, if a white guy named Bob in the Democratic Party from Indiana 
had said this stuff about Israel and Jews that Ilhan Omar uh, had said, trust me, it would be a very different response to the Democrats. But they don't really get to call these shots anymore. Uh, they have created this mentality of the victimhood of identity groups. And it's very powerful, right? Because what, what the, the victimology narrative does to the Democrats is that it gives them, in, in the minds at least of their uh, voters, their constituents, the moral high ground, and it also exploits among people that aren't comfortable enough with their own thinking on these issues. or It, it exploits the, the sense that a lot of other people, perhaps centrists, moderates have, that you know they, they don't want to be part of the bad group. They don't want to be victimizing anyone in these victim groups. And so there's, there's essentially a, a using of the goodwill and good faith of people who aren't leftists against them. Say, oh, well, you know, you better you better not open up a Chinese restaurant if you're not Chinese. That's cultural appropriation. People, some people will say to that, oh, wow, you're right. I don't, I don't want to be insensitive. Nobody wants to be insensitive. Well, you got people now running around the Democratic Party who are members of Congress who wield this like a weapon. You know, take what we say seriously or else you're racist. Take what we say seriously or else you're an Islamophobe and so on and so forth. The Democrats use this, they benefit from it, but it's also apparent, especially with the rise of, as, v as VDH says here, Tlaib Omar and Ocasio-Cortez, it's not clear that Pelosi and the Democrat establishment really have control of these forces and these individuals within their own party. And this could drag things into some very interesting directions going forward. The very first picture of a black hole, folks. You might have seen it today. It uh, it was making the rounds. A lot of people pointed out that it it kind of looks like the eye of Sauron. I mean, it's it's a little terrifying this this photo of it. Um, here's here's the the reporting on it from CNN. Hopefully, CNN is not fake news. Hopefully, when it comes to astrophysics, but maybe. Scientists in April 2017 used a global network of telescopes to see and capture the first ever picture of a black hole. This is according to an announcement by researchers at the National Science Foundation. They captured an image of the supermassive black hole and its shadow at the center of a galaxy known as M87. This is the first direct visual evidence that a black hole exists. The researchers uh, have claimed in the image a central dark region is encapsulated by a ring of light that looks brighter on one side. The massive galaxy called Messier 87, or M87, is near the Virgo galaxy cluster, 55 million light years from Earth. The supermassive black hole has a mass that is 6.5 billion times that of our sun. And yeah, this is, this is one of these things where I, I read about it and... Um, I try to understand what's going on, but I take some solace in knowing that really nobody knows what this stuff is. Uh, nobody truly understands what's going on here. I mean, there's, there are some, uh, you know, astrophysicists and theoretical physicists. And it is amazing that Einstein, from what I understand, again, this is way, this is way beyond my sophomore and high school geometry level of understanding in, in math and, and science, um, but that Einstein was correct in what he thought about black holes. That's that's what I saw today. So that guy Einstein, very smart dude. That much is clear. 
Um, but there, you know, there's there are some theories that I that I have that I carry around. Don't worry, not theories about relativity or things that require you to be able to do math because that's not something that I would be able to do. Uh, but but theories about human knowledge, and one of them is the more you learn about the the history of science and scientific inquiry, the more obvious it is that we are at the very we are at such an early phase in the development of our knowledge about things. Uh, this comes up for me in the context of modern medicine a lot, where people talk about the miracles of modern medicine. Yeah, there's some incredible stuff. Uh, there's also areas of tremendous, uh, still tremendous ignorance might be a little bit too pejorative a word, but the lack of knowledge is astonishing. Uh, the lack of knowledge about gastrointestinal health, about autoimmune diseases, about chronic pain, about, you know, medicine is is in its infancy. And I mean, over the course of, of human history, you look back, I mean, it wasn't it wasn't until the last hundred years or so that we had anything even approaching a, a sensibility of, of or a, a sense of modern medicine. It's still very early in terms of our understanding of space, you know, the, the final frontier, right? It sounds like I'm the beginning of a Star Trek show. Uh, but we, we don't know squat. I mean, we are so early on in this process. And I just think, um, I just think that it's interesting that here we are. This is the first time we've ever had a photo of a black hole. And it does look like the eye of Sauron, which is going to consume our planet and, and destroy all of us. Uh, the good news is it's really, really far away. 55 million light years from Earth. Uh, also, this may bring up for, for Don Lemon over at CNN, is this in fact where that missing plane went? You'll recall, you will recall that Monsieur Don Lemon, Monsieur Don Lemon, may we, uh, that he over at CNN asked out loud on television if a black hole perhaps was what consumed the uh, Malaysian Airlines flight that disappeared without a trace. Uh, and Monsieur Don Lamont was asking a very serious uh, question at the time, I think. Or maybe he was being facetious. It was tough to tell because, well, he's Don Lemon. So big discovery today. If you haven't seen the photo, it's definitely worth checking out. Um, it might terrify you a little bit to know that Sauron is out there and that uh, if Frodo doesn't throw the ring in Mount Doom, we're all finished. But better to know than not know, right? We got roll call coming up in a minute, team. That'll be some stuff that is worthwhile. Stay with me. Hey, Team Buck, it's time for roll call. Finally, a beautiful day here in the swamp. This is this one window in D.C. where the weather is warm enough. You can walk around in a T-shirt, but not so warm and sticky that your T-shirt turns into a wet T-shirt contest, if you know what I mean. So it's nice right now. Not sure it's going to stay that way, but in the meantime, things are, are, are pretty good here in Swamplandia, also known as the People's Republic of Washington, D.C. Facebook.com slash Buck Sexton. If you want a piece, if you want to get in on all the action, all you have to do is write me a note there and we'll be off to the races. 
Thomas writes, as more details of the Mueller report get released next week, Buck, I expect the most frightening thing that will come into focus is that the failed coup plan was developed over a period of time, starting as far back as before Hillary announced she was running for president and had the flexibility to be used for whatever Republican candidate emerges as a nominee. Donald Trump just happened to be the unfortunate target in the end. That leads me to believe this conspiracy plan was devised and implemented by Obama, Jarrett Lynch, Brennan Clapper, Comey, and struck once the Republican candidate was determined. A generic blueprint later refined for candidate Trump. The determination to get Hillary into the White House existed since she was Secretary of State. Then, when she was revealed as a felon for potential acts of espionage, the cover-ups began, and the only possible way to make that all go away was for her to become president. I know, sounds like a second-rate novel, but very plausible. What do you think? Thomas, a lot of analysis there, and I'll just say, uh, there we have it. <laughs> there, there, there you go. You heard what Thomas thinks might have gone on here. Thomas, I, I, I believe that Trump was considered by some people to be an unusually uh, clear and present danger to the Republic. Republic. I, I do think that there were bureaucrats in the in the federal bureaucracy. Uh, there were deep state types um, that, quite honestly, convinced themselves that Trump was a very serious threat. I, I think that that's real. I do. Um, I think they're crazy, but I think they believe that. Paul writes, howdy, Buck, was wondering why everyone is so hung up on the idea of a wall. Let's get medieval on their butts and dig a moat instead. It'll be quick, cheap, defensible, and savannah can contribute some alligators just so they know we're not screwing around. Shields high. Well, Paul, I, I do have to note that the Rio Grande is kind of like a moat except in some areas it is so shallow and flimsy that you could walk across it in flip-flops, no problem. Um, but yeah, a moat would be an interesting way to slow people down even more. You could create, I'm just going to say this, you could just dig out a ditch that would be right in front of the uh, the fence on the Mexican side, because they do usually build a fence a few feet from the actual technical international boundary. So that they, if they need to do fence repair, they can go on the other side of the fence if they have to. Um, but if you created a ditch there, even if it was maybe six or seven feet deep, it would make it harder for people to get across in those areas. Because remember, it's not that the fence stops everybody in their tracks. It's that it slows them down enough that the other uh, border protection measures in place, notably border patrols, roving units, are able to get there in time to make the apprehension, to make the arrest. Paul, I like where your head's at. Carolyn writes, Hey, Buck, I agree with you. It's crazy to suggest reparations for slavery. There's not a single person alive who ever participated in this tragic chapter in our history. We should not be held accountable for the crimes of generations before us. However, we conservatives like to stay logically consistent. How do you reconcile this position with DACA? Should the adult children of illegals be held accountable for the crimes of their parents? I think they should not benefit from the illegal actions of their parents, but how do we reconcile these two positions in a just and logical manner? For me, I think it's just a matter of how many generations you go back. Just curious for your thoughts. Also, if these libs really cared about slavery, they'd focus where it's happening right now with the human trafficking going on at the border. Shields high, Carolyn. Carolyn, very astute question. Here's, here's how I would approach it. If you robbed a bank, Carolyn, which 
No one is recommending you do. Very bad idea. But if you were to rob a bank and then you took all that money and you put it in a piggy bank for your kid, you gave it to your kid and said, hey, here's all this money from the bank. Well, guess what? The ill-gotten gains of your Bonnie and Clyde routine, or I guess just Bonnie routine because there's no Clyde in this situation. I just watched the movie The Highwaymen, and I thought it was very good on Netflix. I would, I would say uh, I'd recommend it for you. Uh, worth watching for sure. But the government wouldn't say, well, it's not fair to take away what has been illegally given to your children. They would take that money and it didn't matter that you had gifted it to your kid and your kid didn't know where it came from. Uh, I think that also can apply here in the case of uh, citizenship. Uh, I'm sorry, in the case of uh, presence, not citizenship, in the United States where someone's been brought here as a child. And I would say that you also have a legitimate deterrence function here. As in, if you take away what has been given to children who are brought here illegally, um, then the parents going forward will know, don't do this. So there's also a state interest in that. Is it fair to the kids? Well, no, but it's also, you know, not fair when the government comes and takes away the kid's house and all of his toys because dad didn't pay the tax bill, you know. So uh, that, that's, you, you can have a direct line of, culpability and responsibility that the state can enforce when you're talking about what was done uh, 150 years ago I, I don't understand how anybody could make a serious case that that's a line that you could you could enforce you know it's almost like there's a there's a statute of limitations or there should be a statute of limitations on you know in, intergenerational crimes where you, you have to be able to make it make a clear case as to who's responsible for what and, and who benefited from what. And there's just no way to do that with reparations. But it's a very interesting question, Carol. Thank you for raising it. Aaron. Hey, Buck, when are you going to do another deep dive? I think your show needs it to break up some of the loony left wall stuff that's bombarding the news of late. I know that I would appreciate it. Actually, I kind of need it. You're our generation's Paul Harvey, since most of us don't read as much as you do. Can I ask for one more favor as well? Could you make it separate available download in case i missed that one show for some reason i'm a podcast only listener i don't catch them every day thanks man shields high aaron um you know i would like to do another another episode of shields high and i think this summer if my schedule is what i think it'll be i, I think there's a real chance that we'll we'll push some of the uh, history shows again um it's just that the time the time involved in doing it because i i do it all myself i mean i've got producer mike and, and my usual radio team that'll assist but the the research, the writing them out, the scripting them. Um, and, I, and I'll say it's, it's also tough because some people really, really like the history, but other people really want me to focus on the current events, the news of the day, more political philosophy and ideological battle stuff. So it's it's tough to know how much of it to do at any one time. But look, I love it. Um, I'm I'm all I'm all about it. And I would very much like to bring it back. So I appreciate that you also like it. And Aaron, I'm looking for an opportunity. Melissa writes, uh, Buck, I got a tech comment. Your podcast was interrupted twice in the first four minutes by advertising. Love the new picture with the beard. It looks terrific. Much more uh, grown up, not so sweet and innocent. Shields high. Well, thank you, Melissa. Barbarossa, red beard over here is, you know, I've, I've kind of taken to it. I kind of like it. I'll be honest with you. It's, it's, it's fun. It's nice. Nice to have a little beard going on. And a lot of, a lot of this audience on the on the male side, maybe a few on the female side too. I don't know. You know, chin hair can get very long. 
I don't know. I'm I'm not passing judgment one way or the other. But a lot of the dudes who listen to this show um, are very much pro beard because uh, they have beards. So I've seen this. I, I've seen this. Uh, I've been like inducted into the brotherhood of beardom is what I'm trying to say. And some of you lovely ladies who listen to the Buck Sexton show are also pro beard. So thank you so much for that. And enough self-indulgent grooming commentary from myself. James writes, hey, Buck, love your show and listen via podcast because I'm at work when you are live. The last few months, though, there have been ads for other podcasts added by whatever podcast network you are on. Uh, now they're even mid-segment cutting it off. I listen to a few podcasts and sometimes sometimes these ads only show up on the Rush podcast and yours. Please make it stop. I can only take so many fashion and transgender podcast ads before my shields fail. Yo, producer Mike, do you know what they're talking about? I don't even know what this is. What is going on? Oh, it's it is the new platform. Oh, DJ John's telling me it's it's a new platform. This is the way it is. Huh. Well, let me see if we can look into this because I, I really I want you all to have, especially those of you who are listening on the podcast side of it. I, I want to make sure you have a very user friendly experience, right? If you're listening on your local radio station, hopefully you have a good signal and we're good to go. Uh, but on the podcast side, I don't want you being bombarded with too many ads. Um, I will say, though, that I unfortunately don't have as much control over these things as, as I would like. James, uh, my taxes went up because my state, Pennsylvania, raised its taxes and ate up my lower federal taxes. Well, James, that stinks, man. I'm sorry to hear that. That is not the way that it should be. Darn it. Joe writes, Buck, you should ask Democrats if they believe in Sharia law. If so... Doesn't that mean they believe in slavery? Uh, well, Joe, Sharia law does have, depending on who's doing the interpreting of it, uh, provisions for for slavery. Um, just ask the Islamic State. As to Democrats in general, I don't think that they would take that position, but I appreciate you writing in, sir. Thank you. Laurel writes, Buck, I was reminded of what you said about prosecutors exercising their discretion when I saw that Lori Laughlin and her husband were hit with even more charges in the college bribe scandal after declining a plea deal. The contrast between this and Jussie Smollett cannot be any clearer. Who would call this justice? It looks more like extortion. Yeah, Laurel, this is this is headhunting. Uh, this is a high-profile case, got a lot of media attention. The prosecutors involved want to really nail people. Uh, when, when you think about the real crimes here, the only victims are some students who lost places in the schools. I'm not saying that's... That doesn't stink, but that's not, you know, they went on to other schools. I'm sure everyone's fine. And the state lost some revenue from the tax avoidance schemes. That's it. So I don't think people should be going to prison for a long time for that. Free Aunt Becky. That's going to be it for today. Team talk to you tomorrow. Shields high.